This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving and are getting in that holiday spirit. Uh, And that leads me to what we're going to talk about today. This is about the time of year when people start to Google nutrition more. Um, December and January are kind of those months where people start to go, I need to do something, right? They may have overindulged at Thanksgiving, and now we're, we're trying to figure out how to, how to get out of this. And uh, that's not necessarily the strategy that I want us to take, but when you Google these things, you're going to come up with so many competing things that are telling you to eat this way or don't eat this way, eat this food, don't eat this food, this one's bad, this one's good. And it can be very, very confusing. And so I'm going to go through some weight loss myths today, some of the things that I see every single day uh, in clinical practice in working with folks who have a desire to lose weight or lower their blood pressure or their blood sugar, those types of things, and what we can kind of do about them instead. So if you have a question or a comment for me, for us, I would love to talk with you today. You can always email me, fit at mpbonline.org. So the first myth is that you have to be on a diet to lose weight or be healthy. And you can't see me, but I'm given the the air quotes around diet, right? Um, When we think about the word diet, that usually makes us think about what we can't have or what we shouldn't have. And it tends to be very restrictive in nature. And we think largely that we have to be on one of these in order to be working towards weight loss or working toward health. And and we don't. Um, what we do need is a plan. And so you may be going, Josie, how is that any different than a diet? Well, what a plan does is it gives you a blueprint, but it doesn't restrict you and it doesn't make you feel guilty for having foods, right? For having cravings for things, for choosing different things. Starting your day or your week with a plan helps you to kind of make more sensible choices or choices that align more with what your goals are without being a hard and fast, no, you can't have any carbs or you have to hit this many grams of protein a day. So that's kind of the first thing to kind of kind of throw out is this notion of I have to be on a really restrictive or prescribed diet. Um, A lot of times when people, when I first start working with people, I do have them keep a food journal. And people say, well, 
are you not doing that because you're you know, telling them a certain number of calories to consume or a certain number of carbs, those kinds of things? And largely, no. Um, I do use uh, my Fitness Pal, which is a, like a free app uh, on people's phones that to, for them to kind of keep track of things. But I'm not even really looking at the calorie number that comes with that um, or really even the the other macronutrients, the, the carbs, the fat, the protein. What I'm looking is to see how many meals a day someone is eating, how many snacks they're eating, and then what the actual types of foods that someone is is choosing. Because that can tell me a lot of a lot of things. And hopefully if you food journal yourself, it can start to kind of show you a lot of things as well. Um, if I were to just ask someone, do you eat fruit? Most people are going to say, I surely do, right? Or if I say, do you like vegetables? People will say, yeah. And I'll say, do you eat vegetables? Absolutely. But then when we look at maybe a five to seven day journal, there may be very few fruits and vegetables on there. And that might not be something that we kind of automatically recognize about ourselves until we start to, to write things down and look at them. So I'm not writing them down to go, oh, you were 50 calories over your calorie goal for today. I'm looking at, and what I encourage you to look at, is the types of foods that you're consuming. Because the evidence is is very clear on what constitutes a quote-unquote healthy diet or a diet that supports health heart, health heart, heart health, um, a healthy blood sugar, and can support weight loss. And that is going to be a diet that is largely less processed, so more whole foods, and that are more plant predominant, meaning more fruits, more vegetables, more grains, less animal products, right? Doesn't mean no animal products, but less. And so getting that snapshot of what we're eating is a good way to go, well, you know, I thought I ate fruit, but I actually didn't have a serving of fruit at all this week, right? And so that may be an area that we want to target or an area that we need to dig down in and see what what's that barrier to eating that fruit, right? Is it that you buy those dang bananas every week and they just turn into a mushy, gloppy mess on your counter, right? I can't be the only one that loses a couple of bananas every week to that. Or those strawberries look absolutely wonderful in the grocery store and you pick them up and they are bad the next day in your refrigerator, right? That may be a barrier. It may be cost, right? It may be access. It's going to be different for every single person. And so it's very, very hard for me to kind of say, well, you should do this to eat more fruit, right? It's going to be very individual. But the only way to get to that is to first step back and say, this is what I'm eating. This is how I would like to eat. And this is what is keeping me from doing that, knowing that we do not have to be perfect, Okay. We do not have to necessarily count every carb, every calorie, every fat gram. We just have to be intentional with what we choose when we have a goal in mind. I've talked lots and lots on this show about goal setting and how you do that. And it all comes back to what we want for ourselves, right? What we want that goal to be. And I strongly encourage you to to pick something that's not a weight number, 
right? Not a number on the scale, because that is going to fluctuate from day to day. I also don't recommend weighing every day, right? Unless you've been told to weigh by your healthcare provider for other issues like kidney issues, heart issues, that kind of thing. But the average person desiring weight loss usually don't recommend really super frequent weighing because it is going to vary depending on your hydration status and um, the time of the day and the scale that you're on, all these different kinds of things. And that can be very, very discouraging. So what we want is to think about what it is that our ultimate goal is. Not the number, but what we would feel like if we were able to achieve that number, right? Maybe it's reduced pain. Maybe it's improved mobility or energy. Maybe it's that you feel like you could go on this vacation that you've been wanting to go on and walk around without getting out of breath. Those are the big things that matter, right? Those are the things that you're going to attach a memory to um, that is going to kind of stand the test of time in terms of being a little bit more motivating. So once we have that, that ultimate goal, right, then we can start to match our behaviors to achieving that goal. Again, not trying to be perfect, right, just trying to be intentional, right? Did I have cake at Thanksgiving? You betcha, okay? My mom makes the most delicious coconut cake in the whole wide world, right? I only get it for Thanksgiving. That's the only time she makes it. Doesn't make it for Christmas, doesn't make it for birthdays. That's the only time she get it. So I absolutely had some cake at Thanksgiving, right? Now, I'm not going to have cake every single day for the rest of the month, right? That doesn't match my ultimate goal that I have for myself. But my goal I had for this this meal and this point in time was to make memories with my family and enjoy my time, right? So I matched my behavior to what my goal was for that moment. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And today we're talking about weight loss myths. I gave you kind of my my first weight loss myth in that you have to be on a diet to lose weight, right? The next one is probably the uh, one of the ones I encounter most frequently in practice. Um, and if, if I was talking to you in a classroom or in a lecture hall or, or at an event, I would ask you to raise your hand. Uh, and I would say, how many of you think a calorie is just a calorie? And that the way to weight loss is calories in, calories out, and that we have to have less calories in and more calories out to lose weight. And the vast majority of you would probably raise your hand. And that's okay. That was a prevailing thought for a very long period of time. Um, In prepping for this show, I thought back on all the classes that I've taught on uh, healthy lifestyle and and weight management and and diet and nutrition over the years. And I thought back to uh, one of the very first classes I taught um, many years ago uh, on health promotion to nursing students. And the topic was obesity. And the very first slide on my slide deck was um, a scale, like think the um, like the scales of justice scale. Uh, and it had calories in, calories out 
on it. Um, and I went through how, you know, making those equal kind of leads to weight maintenance, um, you know, more calories out, less calories in, shifts more toward weight loss, and then the opposite for weight gain. And that's what, what we we're working with, right? But science adapts, right? And we have to adapt as the evidence leads us in different places. And so at the very foundation, right, yes, a calorie is a a measurement of energy, right? And if we take in more energy than we need, we should gain weight. If we put out more energy, we should lose weight, right? But the way our body handles those calories, right, and the way that they are metabolized in our body is very variable depending on different factors and between person to person. That's why you can take one person and smack them on a 1,200-calorie diet and another person and put them on that same diet, and they will have um, inconsistent weight loss between the two of those because we are different people, right? And not everything is going to work the same across the board, right? So at the strictest definition, right, if I on paper had somebody have this many fewer calories than what they needed, um, they should lose weight. But in reality, that's often not what we see. And we tend to go, well, they must be cheating on that diet then, or not writing it all down for me, or they're just lying to themselves. But there are other factors going on. And so we can't talk about a calorie or calories in, calories out without talking about metabolism. And that word gets thrown around a lot, right? But what do I actually mean when I'm talking about metabolism? Well, we're likely talking about something called a basal metabolic rate, which is the amount of energy it takes to run our bodies in a 24-hour period, right? And there are things that can affect that. But for most folks, when we look at this metabolic rate, there are things that go into into play there. About 80% of our metabolic rate is determined by how much energy it takes to run our brain and our heart and our lungs and all the work, our uh, move and all these different kinds of things, right? Just keeping us alive. About 10% um, is related to uh, movement, so like physical activity. And then about 10% is thermogenesis as it relates to food, right? And that's a bud buzzword that circled around a lot um, in the past couple of years, the thermogenic effect of food that led to folks trying to adjust the temperature of their foods to harness metabolism. It's also where that you should drink warm water or ice cold water, you know, those different kinds of things. And that's really kind of splitting hairs when, when I look at it. What I am talking about is there are some foods that it, your body does work harder to digest and therefore burn a little bit more energy digesting them, right? And when we look at what those are, you can, of course, break it down into macronutrients. And there's plenty of, of research out there that will show you which macronutrients um, have more thermogenic effect. Protein tends to have the most, then carbohydrates, then fats. Um, that does not mean I want you to go on an all-protein diet. When you actually look at the head-to-head comparisons of those in folks with a very high-protein diet versus those with a very high-carbohydrate diet, I'm not saying a high processed carbohydrate diet, but a high whole food uh, um, carbohydrate diet, those calorie um, 
our metabolic expenditures are pretty comparable. Okay, so it kind of washes out when you are, are doing that. Um, but what is pretty clear is processed versus unprocessed foods, and the number of calories that it that we burn um, during thermogenesis in respect to that. Um, there was a, a study that was done, pretty small study, um, but pretty cool on the results of it. They took a, a group of people, men and women, right, split them into two groups, and they were kind of offered these meals with the same number of calories, right? So group A and group B got the same number of calories in that meal and even the same um, or very similar distribution of like the sugar, the sodium, the fat, fiber, all those micronutrients. So they're pretty well matched in terms of their composition. But there was one kind of big difference, and it was that one group was given unprocessed foods, so more whole food-based choices, Right. And the other group got ultra processed um, items. And when you think about well, what does she mean by um, uh, whole or unprocessed, ultra processed, I like to think about corn. Right. Think about corn and don't sing the song, um, the, the TikTok song that's out there. I know it's in your head now. But if we think about corn, whole, a whole food version of that would be the corn. You look at it, it looks like corn, okay, regardless of whether it's on the cob or um, kind of sliced off. Some folks would call slicing it off a form of processing. But then I think about a Cheeto, right? Um, a Cheeto has corn in it, but there is nothing about a Cheeto that looks like corn that it started with. So that is a much more ultra-processed form of corn where we could think of corn meal right, as kind of the, the middle of the road there, right? It is ground corn, so your grits, polenta, that kind of stuff. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about kind of whole versus ultra-processed. Anyway, they fed these folks um, one group, you know, calorie-matched um, diets. The only thing that was different was the degree of, of processed food. Uh, and then after those two weeks, they swapped it, right, so that people that ate the ultra-processed food the first two weeks got the whole more whole food option the next time and vice versa. The people who ate the ultra-processed food gained weight, okay? The people that had the more whole food did not, okay? But remember, they were, they were supposed to be calorie-matched, so they were offered the same amount of calories. But when, we, when they looked at what they actually took in their bodies, the people who ate the processed foods ate 500 more calories per day, than the folks who had the whole food. So they were offered the same amount, right? The diets were matched the same, but the ultra-processed people actually consumed more volume of food and more calories, okay? And some of that can be linked back to um, how filling whole foods are, right, versus how kind of hyper-palatable and easy to digest and the less amount of room that some of these ultra-processed things take up in your belly. All right, we'll put a pin in that and come back and talk with it, but I do have a caller on the line that I want to get to. So we will go uh, talk to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning. Good morning. I, I'd like to make a comment sure. about weight gain, weight loss. Uh, it, a lot of it is genetic, baby. Uh, it, it's just, <laughs> I've, I've worked with people, I've worked with a nurse once who was skinny, and she wanted desperately to gain some weight, and she could eat twice as much as I could. <laughs> And not gain an ounce, and uh, she just she just couldn't gain weight. It was genetic. Her mother was skinny. Her folks, all, everybody in her family was skinny, and uh, but yet people 
won't need to lose weight, could eat half that amount and, and still gain weight. It's, it's some of it's genetic. Have you thought about that? Oh, of course. There's always a genetic component to a lot of the things that we talk about in health. What, unfortunately, we often see happen is that people think that whatever the kind of genetic hand they're dealt, that's the one that they're going to live out. And there are, that's absolutely not necessarily the case, right? So through lifestyle modalities, we've actually been able to see where we can, you know, upregulate some genes, turn some things around, those types of things. But when we look at... um populations of people, right, those that are naturally thinner, there may be other factors going on as well. We can't negate the environmental aspect of some of those things as well. But genetics absolutely plays a role, but it's not the whole story. It's just one of those parts. And that's what we call a non-modifiable risk factor, right, or a non-modifiable thing. I can't change who you are, right, but we can work to support that with other strategies. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for giving me a call today. All right. So we were talking about um, metabolism and, you know, the, the, the source of your calories matters. And there are a lot of things that go into play, not just the thermogenic effect of your food, but other parts of our our body that help to work on our metabolism and how we process those calories that make it just not as simple as calories in, calories out in terms of a rigid number uh, than we would would like to see, right? And so um, exercise can be one of those things, okay? Um, The amount uh, of muscle lean muscle tissue that we have can often impact our metabolic rate, right, or how efficiently we burn calories. Sleep is one of those things, and I'm going to save the sleep for a whole nother segment because you guys know that I love to talk about uh, about sleep and, and how that impacts our overall health. Um, medications can play a role in these things. Some of our medications may um, alter our metabolism. Uh, And then um, our gut microbiome, which that's a super cool buzzword that we hear around, but um, it it can matter, right? The set of bacteria and and organisms that we have in our gut can impact how we process, um, process our foods and the types of chemicals that are released in our overall cardiometabolic health. So it's, uh, it's much more than just that calories in, calories out. All right, we do have a caller on the line. We'll go to Mobile and talk with Mikey. Good morning. Hey, it's so good to talk with you again. Ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It is. <laughs> um, uh, okay, got a couple of things I'm going to spit out real fast because it's broadcasting and we need to do that. All right. Um, we are approaching the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that can be done to give you can, you're, the, you're the expert, so you elaborate on this. Things like celery and onions on windowsills in water that is only three inches deep and cut down plastic soda containers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, re- uh, kind of regrowing uh, food scraps. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to get through the, the several months that we have, you know, um, not that long. Yeah. Three or four months is not that long. Uh, uh, you know, it's like... The, uh, and it, look, it makes you really feel good. If you see a little bit of a fresh green onion or a fresh celery leaf on top of something, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. um, 
Okay, and the uh, no uh, something else. Okay. Um, don't com- tomatoes qualify as fruit? They do. Which, um, okay, and canned. So tomatoes, which again, to get through what we're coming through, um, uh, you know, I don't know why, but I always try to look ahead. Okay. Oh, you should. That's having a plan, right? That was my my first point was that we don't have to be on a diet, but we do need to have a plan. And so especially if you don't live close to a grocery store um, or you have transportation issues, then thinking about how you can get more fruits and vegetables um, into your diet over this coming winter is is a great idea. You know, the the first thing you talked about um, is kind of can you regrow things from food scraps? And you can to a certain extent. Um, what I usually do is when I have just one or two little cloves of garlic left over, I will take one of those and you put it kind of the the hairy end down in just like you said, yep. just a couple of little, just a little inch of water. Um, and I actually use a little shot glass for that. And once it starts to yep. kind of sprout on the top, you can let that continue and you can cut that sprout off the top and use that to season your food. Or you can plant that clove. And now is actually a fairly decent time to, to plant that. Um and one clove, it takes a long time, it takes like eight or nine months, but will eventually, when you harvest it, be a whole clove. Um, you can do but the you green. you can eat the greens, though. Yeah, absolutely. Sniff the greens. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And then I actually like, um, so one of my favorite things to make, and I actually made it for Thanksgiving, was um, carrot top like pesto, like a sauce out of the carrot tops. And so I'll often do that with with kind of the top of the carrot that I cut off um, from the grocery store. If it doesn't have a whole lot of of sprouting going on, I'll put it in a little shallow dish of water as well. And then as those little shoots start to come up, um, I'll snip those off. Um, And then once I get a handful or so of those, I'll make a sauce out of of those carrot tops. I forgot about that. Yeah, any of those root vegetables do really well with that. They do. So your point was well made and well taken. I thank you for giving me and a call today. And your advice, too. Thank you so You're much. You're most welcome. You have a good rest of your day. All right, you guys. Too, ma'am. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, and today we've been talking about uh, weight loss myths and some nutrition myths thrown in there as well. This is the time of the year where everybody starts to look up what kind of diet they're going to uh adopt for the new year and and I'm here to try and help you wade through some of that and also to encourage you that maybe using the word diet is not the way we want to go um, but instead looking for a sustainable plan that makes you happy and that gets you closer to the goals that you have for yourself. We were talking about you know, not all calories are necessarily created equal and that, you know, on paper it is calories in, calories out, but how that occurs in our body um, is two very different things and that um, what one calorie restricted diet will do for one person is different than what it will do for another because the source does matter. Um, I wanted to share um, an, another a bigger study before I always talk about the power of your study and whether something is a small study or a big study um, and whether that makes it more generalizable or not. And the one I mentioned before the break was a relatively small study, Um, but this one is a lot bigger. Uh, This one and followed people for a long time, right? So that's what we call a longitudinal study and it helps us see things over time. Uh, And this one actually looked at 120,000 adults over three decades. Okay, so that's a big group of folks over a long amount of time. And what it looked at was 
their kind of rate of weight gain, right? Did they lose weight? Did they stay the same? Did they gain weight over time? And if if any of those things were happening, was there any dietary component that we could contribute to that? And so on average, people gained about 3.4 pounds every four years. So roughly a pound a year, right? A little less than a pound a year. Um, so a lot of times we're just trying to maintain our weight, right? A lot of folks want to lose weight, but if we know over time that weight tends to creep up. So maybe our goal is just not to gain any right now. It's just to kind of maintain. But anyway, the people gained an average of 3.4 pounds every four years. They gained 1.7 pounds more with increased consumption of potato chips, okay? Didn't say what variety of potato chips. And one pound more with each daily serving of sugar, okay? And we're talking added sugar here, not like the naturally occurring sugars in fruits, vegetables, grains, okay? And they gained 1.76 fewer pounds, okay? So compared to the folks that gained, when they increased their physical activity, and when they consumed more foods like fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, okay? So again, this is not matching calories or matching macronutrients. This is just simply observing these folks over time, seeing how much we naturally gain, stay, or lose, and then finding commonalities between those different types of things, right? So correlations, not causations, but correlations. And so it's an interesting thing to think about, maybe shifting some of our, because these were snacky foods, right? Chips are more of a snack type food. Maybe switching some of our snack type foods to more whole food things, more fruits and vegetables um, can help kind of ameliorate some of that kind of weight creep that we see from year to year. So when we're talking about metabolism, right? I want to kind of circle back around to um, physical activity and the importance of being physically active uh, when we are trying to keep our metabolism healthy. One of the things that contributes to that metabolic rate is lean muscle tissue, right? If you're reading in books, you may see something called um, fat-free mass, right? And that is separating out the components of our body that are fat tissue, adipose tissue, and then fat-free mass, right? Which can be bones and that kind of stuff, but we're largely talking about uh, lean muscle tissue, okay? And so the more lean muscle tissue we have, the more we burn just being alive, okay? And so Physical activity, and in particular, resistance activity, okay? Um, I hope you caught the show um, two weeks ago where we talked all about exercise. If you didn't, remember you can find um, all of our episodes um, by searching for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app and take a listen to that. But resistance exercise, which involves our muscles moving against a force, is super important for the development of that lean muscle tissue. So there's aerobic physical activity, which is important for our heart and lung health, right? That's our walking, running, jogging, dancing, biking, those types of things. But resistance is just as important uh, in terms of our overall health and really important in helping to sustain and promote a healthy metabolism. So 
that often sounds like lifting weights, okay? And some of you may be going, absolutely not. That's a hard pass. I am not going to do it for a variety of reasons. One, you don't like it. Two, you don't have any weights at home. Three, you don't know what you're doing, right? Those are all viable barriers to being able to do those things. And it does not have to involve a gym. It does not have to involve um, you know, free weights or weight machines or any of these kinds of things. Your body your own body weight is an awesome form of force or resistance in which to work against, right? So that can be things like the dreaded push-up, which I have a bad wrist. I'm not doing it, okay? Um, it can be um, the alternative to that, the, the incline push-up or the wall push-up that we've talked about on the show. It can be a crunch or a sit-up. It can be a squat. And a lot of times people are really intimidated by the word squat because they see people um, doing really intense squats in workout videos going, you know, way past parallel with their knees and all these different kinds of things. At the basis of a squat, it's a functional movement, right? When you sit down in a chair, that's a squat, right? When you stand back up, that's completing the squat. So when you're starting with resistance training, maybe you just work on that right? Sitting down, getting up, sitting down, getting up without using your hands over time, right? So they're not using your hands to push yourself up or body momentum. I remember uh, my sweet grandmother, she would give herself a good rock in her chair a couple of times, like she was starting her motor to get up and she would take it a couple of times to get up. And if, if that's you, that's okay, right? But we want to continue to work on those muscles to try and get them stronger so that you need less and less support to do that over time, right? So resistance exercises, we don't have to think of them as so rigid and so strict, right? They can be part of your activities of daily living, right? It can be uh, uh, raising some soup cans above your head during the commercial breaks on, at, during television, right? Any kind of movement that gets your muscles pushing against something or pulling against something, those are two different types of movement, pushing and pulling, and are very important for our overall health. Those are how we start to build. Um, so if you're already really physically active in terms of cardio, think about how you can implement resistance training into your daily routine at least a couple of days a week. Um, and if you're not active at all, don't think that it has to be strictly cardiovascular or aerobic fitness in order to be improving your health, right? Doing those uh, curls and sit-ups or squats or raising those cans of peas over your head count. All of those things do count when we're trying to support a healthy metabolism and a healthy weight. And there, that resistance is good for your bone health as well. So don't, don't count those things out. One of the other more common things that I see people um, kind of just go, well, I'm, I'm old. I'm getting older, so I'm going to gain weight, right? That is a very common thing that we think about, but it is not the totality of the situation, right? So I've heard it called the, the, the uh, middle-aged creep-up, right, where we start to gain weight as we age. But weight gain as we age is not inevitable, Okay. Um, there are things that can be done about it, and we've long thought that our metabolism goes down as we age, right? When we actually look at what's going on with folks, 
we've got um, a pretty like little kids have a higher metabolism, right? They're they're growing, 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 and then from about age twenty to about age sixty, in terms of metabolism, it's pretty comparable among those years. And then we do start to see more of a decrease as we age. Some of that is thought to the fact that we lose more muscle mass as we age. So that just harkens right on back to why I want you to be working those muscles and trying to increase the force um, that we exert during the day so that we can help to support that healthy metabolism. Thanks for joining us today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Josie Bidwell, and we've been talking all about weight loss myths today. I have had a caller hanging on for me, so I'm going to go hop over to Horn Lake and say good morning to David. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Over, over Thanksgiving holidays, by pure chance, I happened to look at a, at the top of a can of canned uh, 100% pure pumpkin, and they had a substitution chart saying that the canned pumpkin be substituted for butter, oil, and egg in many recipes, mm. and they even had a conversion chart. Mm-hmm on top of the can. Now, my question to you is, what other easy uh, hacks or substitutions can you incorporate in, in everyday recipes to make your meals more nutritious and maybe incorporate more fiber? I've heard that you can uh, meal flaxseed is a good source. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to mention flaxseed. Um, flaxseed, ground flaxseed makes an excellent substitution for eggs in baked goods, um, for whole eggs. Uh, so it's one tablespoon of ground flax to three tablespoons of water equals one egg. Um, So it's actually what I use in my baking um, to to replace eggs. You can also use um, the, if you're trying to replace just egg whites, like if you need to whip something that you then fold into something, actually the liquid that you drain off of a can of chickpeas, as weird as that sounds, that's called aquafaba. And the protein content in that allows you to whip air into it, just like you would whip air into the proteins of an egg white. Um, You mentioned the pumpkin. That's a good one. And then applesauce is also a great swap for like oil in um, in baking as well as mashed up bananas and the riper your banana the more sweet content it would be Um, so when you're making things like banana bread or banana muffins if you rescue those couple of bananas that are hanging out on the counter that are just on their last leg even though they look real bad, right? Peel them, take a look at them. They're probably still fine and will add a lot of sweetness, but also fiber into your recipe. Is there a, is there a, like a website or a newsletter or something you get that has these uh, easy... Yeah, blocks? you should be able to um, actually just kind of Google um, um, oil-free baking tips, and that'll put a lot of those out there for you. But also, if you want to drop me an email, it's Fit, like F-I-T, at mpbonline.org. I'll be happy to send you some stuff as well. Give me that uh, email address again. Fit, F-I-T, uh-huh. at mpbonline.org. Okay. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for giving me a call, and that was a great question. All right, guys, in the last couple of minutes of the show, I want to talk a little bit about a very popular topic, 
right? And and how we're getting it a little bit backwards when we try to implement it, okay? And that is the role of fasting or probably what you hear it referred to as intermittent fasting and how it works in our body to help with our metabolism and with our weight loss goals, right? We do have a whole show that we did on intermittent fasting that you can find um, by searching in the podcast. But at the, the heart of it, intermittent fasting helps to kind of harness our metabolism when it is at its naturally highest and not overload our body with calories when our metabolism is naturally at its slowest. So what is that and what is it not? Okay, What I see a lot of people do is just skip a meal, right, and kind of call that fasting. Um, I see a lot of people who say, well, I'm not eating breakfast because I'm doing some fasting. Okay, um, And that's not exactly not exactly what we're trying to do with intermittent fasting, right? So there are a lot of um, intermittent fasting plans that are out there. There are things that involve fasting for a whole day. Now, that doesn't mean nothing in your body. Um, it's a, a really low calorie amount. Um, and then days that are more what they call feast days. Uh, I don't love that strategy. Um, I think that that's a little harder to maintain for most folks, Um And when we look at the research on it, less folks stick to that type of plan. I much prefer something called time-restricted eating, which means we are consuming our calories during a certain window of time. And that window of time is chosen to harness our greatest metabolic burn. Okay, And so what do I mean by that? Well, I mean kind of earlier in the day, not super early, okay, but not consuming the bulk of your calories and the later evening and nighttime. And that all circles back around to sleep. Okay. When we are awake, we burn a certain number of calories. Okay. When we sleep, we on average burn 15% less calories per hour while we are asleep. So if we move our feeding window to three o'clock in the afternoon to nine o'clock at night and then we get in the bed and go to sleep and we consumed a big old 1200 calorie meal at nighttime we are not going to burn through that while we are sleeping okay um so what we want to do is shift that that feeding window and i don't even really like that word because it makes it sound like you're at the zoo but that feeding window to earlier in the day to harness when our metabolism is greatest which is in the afternoon and early evening hours so the other part of that sleep is we do burn calories while we sleep we're not we're not dead we are burning calories but the majority of the sleep stages don't burn as many Now, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, is more metabolically active, right? But if we're not sleeping well, right, which I've talked about a lot on this show, we're frequently waking up, we have untreated or undertreated sleep apnea, then we may not be getting enough REM sleep. And so we're not even harnessing that metabolic burn that happens during that point in time, right? So that's why sleep is so important. I'm going to do a sleep show coming up soon, so we'll talk more about it then. But moving that feeding window to maybe 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., right, and consuming your calories then is a much more reasonable strategy. But that doesn't just mean dropping breakfast, okay, and then having a significant calorie reduction, like 800 calories a day in that feeding window. You will have some initial weight loss, but that is not going to be sustainable, and your metabolism is going to suffer for that, Right, we're going to slow that metabolism down. Metabolic sludge is kind of what I like to call it. Okay, so still consuming an adequate number of calories, 
but just in a shorter time frame. So maybe a reasonable brunchy type uh, meal, a mid-afternoon meal, and then your evening meal around six, right? So if you're interested in doing intermittent fasting, please talk to your healthcare provider so that they can help you kind of wade through that and build that process out for you. Um, consult a registered dietitian. You can find those at eatright.org. Um, they have a list of dietitians in your area. All right, guys, that pretty much does it for today's show. I didn't even get to cover all the things I wanted to talk about, which just means we'll come back with a part two as we dig through some of these weight loss myths. If you didn't get your question into us, please uh, send me an email, fit at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is provided in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 